0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party that's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet cabinet of eight great beers. Each month Beer52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the political party. I hope this finds you well. Today's episode features Rosie Duffield, the Labour MP for Canterbury. Not just the Labour MP for Canterbury, the first ever Labour MP for Canterbury in the history of this country. Canterbury was recognised in the Guinness Book of World Records as the longest uninterrupted period of one party holding a parliamentary seat. The Tories. That's how big a deal this victory was, both of them in 2017 and 2019, of course. So they're huge in themselves, but they're also huge against the backdrop of Labour support collapsing everywhere and in its heartlands. And yet Rosie Duffield has won that seat twice for Labour in Canterbury. So there's so many brilliant political lessons about that seat that you can extrapolate across the country about how you can win against the odds and against the tide, about the changing nature, perhaps, of some of our constituencies as well, in terms of their demographics. We also talk about the brilliant work Rosie's done on the domestic abuse bill and standing up for victims of domestic abuse. And something you might not know about her was her period as a satirical comedy writer and um, for a satirical puppet show. So there's loads for us to talk about, but I began by asking her How she managed to win, apart from having an excellent candidate, what makes a place like Canterbury vote Labour for the first time ever? Um,
1: Well, there were lots of theories about why and people wrote books and there were chapters in books written by men and they didn't really sort of ask me very much. But if they had asked me, I'd have said that they were right in that it was largely students, that students had felt unengaged and not part of the conversation, and there are nearly fifty thousand in Canterbury. So um, I think you know the students were fantastic for me. They were really active. They were delivering leaflets. I know a lot of them. They're really active in our local um, political scene, um, and I just spoke to them a lot. and And they got out and they got their friends to um, register to vote and all of that kind of stuff. So that was that was one aspect. Um, I think Brexit was another huge one because um, our previous MP was leading the Leave campaign and I'm a very anti-Brexit MP you may have noticed and um, especially for our area it's a huge issue um, with our European University and tourism and you know the fact that so many people come to Canterbury on their way to London so it affects probably you know most parts of our lives here. and. Um, that was an issue and also I think the fact that the last MP was seen as pretty old-fashioned and kind of homophobic in his views and just not really um in touch with the kind of younger demographic that's been growing here um I think if you've done the job for 30 years and you sort of assume that you're going to be okay people notice and think "Well, hang on a sec you know and um, they wanted a change I guess.
0: The student thing's fascinating me because there are so many towns and cities across the country that have a high student population, but often students are registered back where they're from, at home, at their mum and dad's place, rather than registering in the town where they study. Had there been a big drive from you or from your local party to get those people registered?
1: Yeah, I mean certainly locally as a party, we sort of reached out to students, and then they reached out to the wider campus. They had street stalls and stalls on campus about registering to vote because you know otherwise they don't have a voice, and it's like you know the demographic on a city council all of those issues kind of are you know students are affected by all of those issues like rubbish collections or where you can park or what the rents are and the NHS all of those things and they care deeply about all those things not just student tuition fees which is a mistake a lot of old fusty politicians make that they only care about tuition fees and free stuff which they don't Um, and I think getting them to register and have a say in those issues is really important but it also informs me as an MP if they're really worried about environmental issues and I'm not seen to be doing enough about that, they're going to let me know. And I think that's really important. If I get boring and complacent and I don't sort of listen to what they're thinking about, then I deserve not to be around anymore, you know.
0: The the victory is so huge, the victory in Mm -hmm. Canterbury. And to have done it twice and to have increased your share of the vote at the last election as well. Canterbury was recognised in the Guinness Book of Records for the longest <laughs> in, uninterrupted period of one party holding a parliamentary seat, like there, there should be, there'll yeah. be films made about it.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know how exciting that would be. But um we did a sort of quite unique campaign here, certainly in the last election, um, led by my really good friend. It, it was about um just sort of coalescing around support for me and not the Tories. So it was recognising that this is not a conservative with a big C area, and just you know, kind of harnessing the green vote and the Lib Dem vote and the kind of general Romani feeling here and just saying you know if you don't want another Tory back again back Rosie and I have been just overwhelmed by the support for members of other parties because um you know it's really humbling actually when people who would naturally be a member of another party or vote for someone else will vote for you because they trust you and I take that really seriously.
0: There's been so much written about the Tories making inroads Mm -hmm. into the so-called red wall in Ashfield in Mansfield in Mm -hmm. Sedgefield but what you've done is is do it to the Tory party. You've 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 poked a red hole into a blue wall. So I mean, potentially there's a route for Labour in in places not just like Canterbury, but places where people haven't voted Labour for generations, and you've shown the way.
1: I think I think that's a really important point. You know, we cannot take any no party can take a vote for granted. So yes, we've lost the seats that we probably weren't really keeping enough of an eye on necessarily we've lost some brilliant MPs but just as part of that sort of general Labour narrative of not really doing well enough or listening to our core vote those MPs individually were brilliant but as a sort of party as a movement we weren't addressing that somehow were we and and down here the demographic has changed so much I've got a lot of people that have moved down from London and they are the the nowadays kind of Labour voters so it has changed yeah.
0: So it's the demographic the Graphics of these seat are changing as well. It's not just that the politics of these places that people are thinking yep. again about how they express their political values after Brexit and other things. That yep. that that kind of that that commute out of London is bringing perhaps more metropolitan liberal yep. values yep. to these places
1: if you look at the seats we've got in the southeast we kept all eight of them we should have many more but in the more working class bits of St. medway we're still not quite there but we've got brighton we've got canterbury we've got those kind of university middle class kind of areas and i would hope here that i've got working class areas as well because i worked as a teaching assistant i know a lot of people on the estates so it it kind of comes down to but it comes down to hard work in those kind of areas because they don't see Labour as having backed them up in the last couple of elections, I don't think.
0: So that first election you stood in, 2017. Mm. Did at any point you think you were gonna win?
1: No, not
0: really <laughs> <laughs> You're the opposite, because loads of people who lose think they're gonna win, but you won thinking yeah. you were gonna lose.
1: No, I never think I'm gonna win. And, and I
0: think
1: you can <laughs> got to Because otherwise you do get complacent and you kind of You know, if you think, oh, well, you know, that's that. I mean, that's an awful attitude to have. You have to work for every single vote and you have to know what you're doing right as well as what you're doing wrong. And I think um, it was a huge shock for me more than anyone else everyone else was kind of going oh my god but I was properly in shock for a really long time and I couldn't quite believe it but I ran the campaign as though I was gonna you know I thought I'm gonna give it my all and I kept saying to my children they were reading all these polls that I was um retweeting saying that I had a chance and I was leading and they said to me oh are you gonna win and I went no don't be silly but I've got to kind of say that sort of thing and um and then I did (laughs) so yeah
0: and then, so you—it's you, a smaller majority, but it's still an amazing victory. Were there any recounts on the night?
1: Um, the first—the first one, yeah, because it was one eight seven, and I was a complete idiot because um, Julian Brazier—it was—it was, was two hundred and thirty or two hundred and fifty or something, and I just assumed that was Julian Brazier's win. And other people were saying to me, no, Rosie, that's you." And by then, I'd already asked for a recount, and it went down. (laughs) No, but it would never have occurred to me that I was winning. I couldn't take that information in. Wow! And then this must be the only candidate in history (laughs) who's asked for
0: a recount when they've been ahead.
1: (laughs) I know it was a bit daft, but you know, I just couldn't believe it, and nor could he. We were, but our faces were both like, "Oh, you know." Complete and take it. Um, I think we were both just totally shell-shocked for quite a while actually and uh, every time we saw each other it was kind of "Did that really happen?" <laughs> it was very strange
0: but was he gracious
1: he did go up this time thank god <laughs> you know but um not much but it did
0: so this time but i mean you still a, it's a far bigger majority this time
1: yeah did you think it. you
0: good, did you think you did you feel better about the campaign during it twenty nineteen. Uh,
1: it was really hard to know, actually. I, I had more fun in a weird way. Um, I mean, it was so quick and I like that. I like that sort of intense kind of you just go out, you kind of kill yourself with hard work and then it's all over. And I did really like that. In fact, Christmas was a kind of real anticlimax. So I thought, oh God, we can we do it. And it dragged on for weeks. But um, but yeah, and then the fact that it went up, that was a relief. But on the night, before I'd even got to the count, they were saying, I think the exit pump said I was 99% likely to lose. Wow. So that was a bit depressing. Yeah. And I got there and everyone's faces were just so glum and, and low because of the national picture. And I'd been hearing about friends that had lost their seats. So I wasn't in a great mood either. But um, it was a shock. Yeah. It must have
0: been, I suppose, winning in 2017 when when you you just win by such a small majority. You think, well, at least I've got five years, and then all of a sudden you've got another election (laughs) two years later. You think, is this all going to come to an end so quickly? Yeah,
1: Yeah, it was. That was not what we wanted, definitely not as a Labour Party, and you can see why now. So hopefully, Mm -hmm.
0: hopefully, there's at least well four and a half years until the next election. But let's see what happens.
1: I think so. Yeah, I mean, maybe, because everything else has been delayed, hasn't it? So perhaps the general election will get delayed as well. I don't maybe, know. Maybe,
0: yeah, let's see what happens. But um, you yeah. mentioned you've been a teaching assistant in, in Canterbury. That's yeah. not the only prior employment you had. You were also a satirical comedy writer. Yeah. So what was that about? Because I tried researching it, and I've, I I heard it was for a, a satirical puppet show.
1: Yeah, I've kind of kept that really well hidden, so I'm glad. <laughs> um. It was, we made, um, my fantastically clever friend Roger made sort of spitting image style um, <laughs> politicians actually and um, we, we've got a Nigel Farage, we had an Ed Miliband, um, yeah it was great fun but we didn't get paid and I just secured us a television deal just for, for doing a pilot and um, and then the election got called and I said to the guys I'm really sorry can I just go off and do the election and then i'll be back you know in a few weeks and we had it all ready to go and then i went oh, i'm really sorry guys i've, I've won you know that was <laughs> never for me but it kind of did put everything on hold a bit actually
0: but that's amazing that you got to a tv pilot stage
1: yeah i mean it was it was hard work and um you know we, we i hooked up with some friends and i kind of got them interested and you know made friends with people in tv and Yeah, I just thought, why not go for it instead of just doing this for a hobby? And we were doing it in my friend Roger's one-bedroom flat in Walthamstow um, with a green curtain. And um, I had my hand up Larry the Cat puppet because I was one of the smallest hands. So, um, yeah, but I was attempting to write comedy.
0: (laughs) was that – had uh, had you wanted to do that before? Was that something that you thought, I'd like to have a go at comedy and comedy writing?
1: uh, I mean, I started writing when I was about six, um, just silly things, just stories. It's all I've ever wanted to do. I wanted to be a journalist, um, but I didn't know the right people. I didn't go to the right, I didn't go to university. So that was really, really difficult. And um, I knew that I wasn't really going to get very far with that. So I just did this for fun, really.
0: So had you not got elected, there's a sliding doors moment where this <laughs> new satirical puppet show gets made and then you're... Your life then, you might still have been a member of the Labour Party, but you, your career might then have been comedy.
1: Yeah, I was hoping so. That was the plan anyway, yeah. I mean, I stopped being a teaching assistant, taken a loan, which is daft, to go and do this comedy for nothing. And um, and then I thought that was going to be my future. I thought, hey, we're doing this. It's going to be good. And then, yeah. <laughs> so, um, what sort
0: of, I mean, obviously, satire is quite broad, but what sort of comedy were you writing then? I mean, was it was it ferocious? Oh. Was it... was it what sort of can you remember any of it
1: um yeah I can't I'm anyone finding it (laughs) um yeah it was kind of I mean it was brilliantly fun but it was it was spitting image star but you know it was a bit more surreal than that and kind of half there's only four of us in the team really and half of us wanted to do I wanted to do real spitting image kind of stuff and the news it's that kind of thing and yeah. the other team the other half of the team wanted to go really surreal and a bit more kind of inventive I was more about the politics I guess and the, the last thing we were planning on doing was um, the mayoral elections when Sadiq was um, standing and we had all the mayoral puppets kind of ready to go and wow. and then the election got called early so oh, yeah we, we could have done loads it, it was so fun and maybe when I get boosted out of parliament maybe you know maybe i can um go back to it i don't know
0: <laughs> so did you ever want to try stand-up
1: um i would be happy to write stand-up for other people <laughs>
0: <laughs> but <not laughs> don't do it i can
1: do it myself i'm not sure about that i mean it's hard enough kind of making speeches in the house of commons i don't know you get enough heckling but um i'm not sure <laughs>
0: maybe but it's quite a rare car- career even to have dabbled mm-hmm. in prior to politics. Uh, you probably so. the first.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was just always the one in my friend's group who made everyone laugh. And I kind of thought, well, this has been happening for a while now. Maybe I am quite funny. And um, it's just the most fun thing I could think of to do. I mean, you must love it. It must be the yeah. best job in the world. So, you know. Well, you've
0: got a good job now.
1: True, true. I do love my job. But I also am really aware that, It won't last forever and you just, you can't take it for granted. So there's got to be something else to fall back on.
0: Wouldn't it be a cruel world if your friends get that puppet show made and you end up being one of the puppets that they have to satirise?
1: I am constantly warning them not to make a puppet. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, they can if they want, it's okay. (laughs) It'd
0: be a nice problem to have.
1: That's true. That's very true. Yeah. I did have cartoons done of me in the 2017 election, and I absolutely loved that, I have to say. Um, Sir Julian, my predecessor, wasn't so keen, but I think if you can't laugh at yourself, then really don't do this. You
0: know? And how, because, and I suppose with the puppets you were making, as with Spit and Image, they're caricatures that play on either physical features or jokes about that person that we know. Yeah. So what, when people caricature you, what are they picking up
1: on? Oh, God. I don't know. I suppose the fact that I'm little. and um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know, really. What would they do? It's impossible to tell if it's yourself, isn't it? Um,
0: I think you ever, quite do you it. ever look at them and think, oh, no, they've noticed my chin or my nose yeah. or my ears yeah. or, you know.
1: Probably there's loads of stuff like that. Yeah, actually. That wouldn't be very nice, would it? Yeah, I didn't I don't mean know.
0: to make you paranoid. It was more... But, uh, um, I was thinking more that you'd been on one side of it. I mean, the puppets you were making then, were Mm -hmm. they grotesque like spitting image puppets?
1: You know, I thought they were quite nice, mostly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Considering, I mean, the Nicola Sturgeon one was amazing and the Theresa May one, oh my God. I just, they should have seen the light of day. Um, We did a Donald Trump and the last leg used our Donald Trump and our um, Nigel Farage, actually. Oh, wow. So um, they've had fame. They've they've been on TV.
0: So, yeah. That's so cool that it got that far though.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean we didn't get involved with what the, the kind of comedians did with them. They they did their own thing, but it was just it was nice to have them having that coverage, yeah.
0: Oh, that's very cool. Um, yeah. So you you didn't end up as a comedy writer yet. You're you a member of Parliament. <laughs> uh, but already in, in that such a short space of time, you've already mm. become such a prominent figure for the neighbor party. Did, oh, I mean, is that,
1: do you feel aware know. of that? Um, I suppose, I mean, it's it's lovely to have the platform of being elected as the chair of the Women's PRP. I mean, that is hugely humbling because there are women who kind of I've admired and watched on telly for a long time. And the people that, you know, I just sort of wanted to have my book signed by them, you know, kind of years year ago. And now I get to to chair the, the Women's PRP. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, and I think that gives me a platform. Um, yeah and just the fact that it was an unwinnable seat I think as well kind of gave me quite a lot of publicity. So
0: with with chairing the, the Women's PLP what does the what does that role actually involve?
1: Um it tends to involve I mean we do meetings once a fortnight and we we're, we're trying to become more kind of involved in Labour Party policy for women and to work with our Women Inequalities Equalities team Mm -hmm. Um, and it just unites the women I mean we're the biggest sort of group of women in Parliament there's 103 of us so um, you know we work with other parties to get things like we work with beer hop house to get the upskirting bill passed and on the domestic violence bill and things we will work with other women um and where the sexual harassment issue has happened in parliament you know we need to work together on that so we're quite influential in in the house actually
0: Labour's still not had a female leader after 120 years of existence it seems really odd for the party that prides itself on being the party of equality mm-hmm. to have never elected a woman Ain't i know that that very strange.
1: Yeah. I mean, we had Harriet Harman and Margaret Beckett as our acting leaders, but um, yeah, it would have been lovely to have seen a woman as a leader this time. However, I mean, Keir is, you know, my kind of politics. So I think he's doing a brilliant job. Um, and I think, you know, next time we will get there, actually, um, you know, whenever Keir's fed up, um, we will get there. But, you know, I mean, our deputy leader is a woman and Rosanna did really brilliantly well. So women did really well in that, that sort of context. But um, yeah, we'll get there.
0: And is there? I mean, it must be sort of mixed feelings, I suppose, that there are so many of you in Parliament. Labour's parliamentary representation is almost fifty-fifty now. That's
1: but it's more than it's fifty-one. I think. I think. Yeah, we've got more. Oh, women oh excellent!
0: There. Well, that's good news. Yeah. So there's so there's more. But but then it, yeah. there is that that top job is so symbolic and rightly so. Yeah. Particularly when the Tories have had two female prime ministers. do so they
1: like reminding us? Yeah. Very much.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, and that's why, you know, General Secretary was a woman and I would really like that role to continue as a woman, actually.
0: Yeah. And is there a kind of candidate that, the women's plp would support or because it's a staffing matter would you not get involved in i
1: don't know if we could officially unite around anyone because it's not really a vote and i don't get a saying my friend joe baxter i think would be absolutely fantastic she's just got back to the nec um i hope she's interested in role she's got loads of experience um and i would back up someone like that very definitely yeah
0: and uh is scottish which you know is a a huge (laughs) priority for labor
1: Absolutely. We've got one Scottish MP left and I'm doing quite a bit of work with a group called These Islands about uniting the kingdom and and keeping united. Um, And they're doing kind of lots of stuff about what we need to do to win back Scotland. So that's really important. Yeah.
0: And I mean, the the women's PLP, like the wider PLP, Mm -hmm. you're united by the fact that you're labour and and by the fact you're women, but there's still a broad disagreement on the future of the party and the future of the country got people right across the spectrum of the left mm. what are the meetings like do they get as um passionate as we hear plp meetings get or because there's that slight change of emphasis is it perhaps a bit friendlier
1: honestly i've always said this when I, i've been part of Fifty Fifty parliament which is a cross-party um movement for a long time and i've always said and, you know, people have got to understand this, we are women first and party political second because just the fact that we still feel like such a small group compared to the men and compared to the history of Parliament is really significant still. And, you know, we we do unite around those meetings. You know, we talk about policy, we talk about abortion law, and we talk about um, harassment, and we kind of do tend to forget those factions while we're in the room together i am really keen on uniting that just for that hour that we're in the room together and it seems to be working um so yeah there are factions still but mostly we are women in parliament who have a united aim
0: one of the things you mentioned earlier was the domestic abuse bill which is currently going through parliament at the moment Mm. Um, is that something that's been worked on quite well cross-party
1: yes very much so i mean you know Theresa May mentioned me last week um, when I did my speech. So I mean, that's that's quite amazing. And um, we do we do work together. I mean, she has been really instrumental in this. And you have to give due credit to those women who have kind of forged the way for other people. And honestly, politics, party politics doesn't come into issues like that. You just don't feel like that when you're in the chamber.
0: So when when on this bill specifically, when it's being designed and 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 written, there mm-hmm. the, the, the Government, the Tory Party, is, is is perhaps more open on an issue like this to, to working with opposition MPs than it would on on perhaps other political issues.
1: Very much so. I think they really are keen to listen to what we're saying. And I mean, Nick Thomas-Simmons and our home team and Jess Phillips have been working on just making sure we get that funding for DV Charities. That is key. You know, so that's a political issue. You know, are we going to get enough money? Um, and I know locally that, that refugees and things are really suffering. So um, that's a really key thing. But that's more broad political funding generally for charities and support for them, I think.
0: So there are a number of things that the bill will do, create a statutory definition of domestic abuse, it will establish a domestic abuse commissioner, it will place a duty on local authorities in England to provide support to victims of domestic abuse. I mean, Mm. this all sounds really positive, but, Mm. uh, you know, someone who's never been the victim of it, I don't know if these measures go far enough or whether they're adequate.
1: I think it's a real start. But the number one thing is to give funding to those people that know what they're doing. So it's all very well telling local authorities you've got to go and you've got to be responsible, but they have to be funded. You know, they have to be able to provide those services. And you know that, again, comes back to um, austerity and the fact that local authorities have been so badly affected by that. And you know my council tax, even here in Canterbury, has gone up from, I think it was £103 last year, it's now £125. Now that's OK, I've got a good job but you know I know that the authority is struggling and especially with this they're going to come out with huge debts so asking them to keep on doing more isn't that brilliant unless you're going to give them more money. Uh,
0: there's been an amendment put down as well to, to change the sex game gone wrong or the yes. so-called 50 shades defence um, yeah. that in itself sounds like that. that is a, a hugely positive change. Mm. I mean debates like this really make you realise the power of parliament for. Yeah not just being able to change the law in the right way, but for educating the public about the horror that some people have to live with and stuff like this, isn't stuff we're used to hearing about in Parliament all the time.
1: Some of the speeches last week were just, I mean, I hadn't heard, I, I kind of avoided hearing all the details about that particular case because it's pretty horrible and pretty hard to listen to, but I sort of made myself listen to those speeches and they were really moving. I mean, you know, what that young woman went through and it, there must be lots of other women going through that and it's horrific and we have to make sure, Harriet Harman's done an awful lot of work on this, we have to make sure that that is part of the bill. yeah.
0: Your speech um, is seen as one of the defining speeches, really, the last few years, particularly on this subject. It's very powerful and moving speech. I've, so I, I feel really bad about asking you about it because even though it's a, it's such an important political moment, it must just be such a horrible experience to have to relive.
1: Um, I think by the time I came to sort of speaking about it, I'd gone through the worst and I was kind of ready to just, I just thought, if I don't do this now, if I don't kind of stand up and say, you know, it's not just everyone else, it's not just anonymous people, that everyone, I mean, when I made the speech, other MPs came forward and said that they too had had Similar experiences, so I know it's not just me, it's just people in general, isn't it? And that was an important point I
0: found. It is, but to talk about any trauma that you've been through is really difficult anyway, let alone yeah. standing up on the floor of the House of Commons in front of cameras and doing it. I don't think, yeah. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I'm, and I'm sure you've been inundated with so many people that it would have helped, but it doesn't reduce mm-hmm. the fact that you've still got to take that decision as a person and, and put that out there about yourself, and just. I can't imagine that's very easy.
1: It wasn't, but I just felt like I absolutely had to do it. And um, I'd been at conference a couple of weeks or a week before, and um, my ex had sort of made his presence felt. And I had thought to myself, that was the decider. I thought to myself, okay, if you're going to do that and you're going to try and frighten me and you're going to try and intimidate me, then actually I have to really show that I'm not frightened. So that was a key thing. So it was kind of personal and political. Which happens
0: quite a lot in this job. The the, the power of it. I mean, it was a fantastic speech and so well delivered. But it really the, there are moments. And I watch a lot of the Parliament Channel, which I realise is a tragic confession. <laughs> but part of the reason yeah. I watch it is you find out stuff about the country that you don't necessarily find out elsewhere. It's an important mm-hmm. form for finding out about all sorts of things. Yeah. And I think a lot of men don't see this stuff going on. It, it and obviously men can be victims of domestic abuse, yeah, but it's true. predominantly. Yeah men abusing women in this way and it's so hidden and and uh, just to shine a light on it in parliament has to have done so much good not just in terms of changing the law and changing policy but as a nation we're talking about things that are difficult to talk about
1: yeah I mean I kept being told that it had helped a lot of people and I I don't know I I just did it anyway I didn't really think about that stuff but but um, I think yeah the fact that we're talking about it and I did a speech last week where I just basically got a bit cross and (laughs) said, you know, if you're someone who's doing this, just stop, stop right now. And I, you know, how likely is that? But I would like to think that someone may have seen it and maybe had a wake up call and uh, thought about what they were doing. I don't know, even if it's just one person, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not often. I mean, I, That's the other thing. I can talk to and on behalf of women, but what about the people doing this? Do they ever watch Parliament? Do they ever think twice about what they're doing? I don't know. I'd love to kind of speak directly to them and just go, bloody stop it. You know, so I tried. (laughs)
0: you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com obviously during this lockdown it's been one of the concerns about the lockdown itself and um if it continues that people have although it has public health benefits for not catching COVID-19, there are other quite profound impacts for people, which is things like domestic violence and domestic abuse. And that's that's something that obviously has to be considered when considering when to release the lockdown and how and when.
1: Mm, Yeah. I mean, the idea that women are locked behind doors at the moment is pretty horrifying. And my team talk about that and we get, we do get the odd email from from people saying that they are sort of trapped so we will obviously intervene as much as we possibly can in those cases um yeah I mean you only have to look at Coronation Street in the last couple of weeks and I caught up with it all in one go at the weekend and uh those things are really difficult to watch but they're realistic and that is going to be happening and you know that you know when the World Cup happens and things like that incidents kind of go up so much so the idea that you know you can't just get out of the house you can't just go to work or escape or even go to the park or anything without it being really scrutinized is pretty horrendous yeah I think we're going to find I mean we've already found that there are more you know more violence has happened towards women because of this
0: so so with the bill overall in terms of the measures in it uh, and obviously the the the, there's so much more you would do in an ideal world but this bill Mm -hmm. itself has the potential to be what to make a huge change to people's lives.
1: I hope so. Yeah. We just need to strengthen the powers that police have got. And we need to, I think, really make people aware that if they're going to do this, they're going to be found out and, and just make, Women feel safe, well, and men, but but women mostly feel that they've got somewhere to go and that they're safe and that they're going to be believed and that it is taken seriously as a crime because that's the other thing. People are not coming forward to report these things because they're frightened of being blamed. And if you're told all the time that it's you, that it's in your head, that you're the one that's a problem, you then just just even speaking those words out loud, believe me, is very frightening and I mean, if friends hadn't spotted what was going on with me, I don't know that I would have gone up to someone and had that conversation. I don't know how I would have done it. But other people spotted it in me and kept saying, are you okay? And I don't quite like what I'm hearing and kept questioning what I would do if I heard that from a friend. And eventually it filtered through to me. But it did take a while. And I'm, you know, quite tough and a feminist. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. Believe me.
0: That's why it's been so inspiring, really, to hear you talk about your own personal experience, but to see, particularly in this piece of legislation, people working across the political spectrum to, to, yeah. to effectively do the right thing. But with all these things, you know, whenever this, when these things are going through Parliament, you know, I can read the detail of the bill and it sounds like a good thing and all these sounds like positive changes. But in order to fully tackle domestic abuse in, in this country, it would take, we're talking about, actually, as, as well as government legislation, social change in terms of the attitude to the people that, that perpetrate this violence and abuse. I mean, how how do you tackle that?
1: Good question. I think there are, there are um, football clubs tackling it and charities that are just focusing on educating men and young boys. So there's a charity called Hestia, who have been around for quite a while, since the 70s, I think. And they concentrate on they'll do sort of activities for boys like they'll do kind of den building and, and things like that and they will kind of weave that into the conversation you know how you treat women mostly and how you treat your partner and I mean that's part of sex and relationship education as well which is why that's so important um it's just talking to to guys I suppose about you know women being equal and respect and you know how to kind of just how to curb your temper possibly and you know i suppose it is that culture isn't it around football and and that sort of stuff and yeah it's it's tackling that it's talking about it isn't it and men are helping there are some brilliant men helping actually
0: and in and in parliament you you feel that most men in parliament are 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 in agreement with with the with the aims and values you're trying to achieve that there's there's not I mean, you would hope there isn't any resistance, but I don't know Um, if that's been your experience. There's
1: one male MP who would like it to be non-gendered. And I think that's, I mean, that doesn't sound like a huge thing, but actually when you consider the vast majority of people that suffer are women, there are other men who are fighting that. I mean, my friend Alex Norris made a brilliant speech last week about how it had to be gendered. And, you know, we've got loads of allies like that, but there's one particular MP who, you know, is going to always make that an issue. He likes International Men's Day, things like that. <laughs>
0: so, oh, was it Philip Davies?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah.
0: surely you think with people like him sometimes, just...
1: just. I think he wants to make a point. I don't don't say it. Yeah, I know. There's a time and a place. And men are victims, of course they are. I've heard from them. Um, and it's important to recognise that. But the majority of women, you know, and it's men using their strength and their power against women. And that's a key part here.
0: Uh, you As well as being um, chair of the Women's PLP, you're also now an opposition whip. Um yeah. Now, the yeah. job of a whip has changed a lot, even in the last perhaps 20 or 30 years. But they are classically seen as disciplinarians, people who, you know, strong-arm <laughs> people.
1: Yeah. What sort of whip are you planning to be? Carrot. I'm going to be more carrot than stick, aren't I? I mean, I kind of joked when, with the chief whip when he phoned me and just said, but I'm someone who just like shares jelly baby. Like I can't sort of, I can't be horrible. Okay. So bribery
0: anyone. then that's a key, that's a key part <laughs> yeah, of the uh, field doctrine.
1: That. Definitely. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's enough people in the team who are, going to be good at you know alan campbell and people who are quite frightening um, in a lovely way um <laughs> to add that to my portfolio i don't think <laughs> i can persuade and i've got lovely people to work with and the team is fantastic so i'm going to really enjoy it
0: so i mean the the modern role of a whip rather than <laughs> say strong arming is is to what to to convince to
1: similar to my role as women's plp chair you just have to actually sometimes have people in your office sitting down with a cup of tea crying you know because it's about their personal issues as well and you know i do that as chair of the women's plp i just have a place where i can go and we can just sit down and chat and i love that um i started training as a counselor before i got um to be an mp and I, that's that's the sort of thing that i really love doing so that aspect of the job is very me actually <laughs>
0: So what would Rosie Duffield in 2020, who's a a whip, say to Rosie Duffield in 2018, who resigned from the front bench to vote to stay in the single market? What what would you have said to yourself over a cup of tea?
1: Um, I would persuade me to vote kind of with the party, but I would also understand that in that particular circumstance, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't. And the chief whip was just completely delightful when I talked to him about that actually at the time. He was so kind and really lovely, and he understood that for my constituency, I could not possibly Mm. have voted against the EA. I just couldn't. So, yeah, it was really important. It must have been so so hard. hard. No, big issues. And now I can't remember at all.
0: (laughs) 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 But that's the price you pay for having a position of influence.
1: I guess so. Yeah. That's the trade
0: off. Um, Yeah. I, I mean, it must have felt weird to be a new MP. Mm. to get into the to get a shadow brief and then so quickly and then to, to resign from it so quickly
1: I know but I knew it would come at some point I knew I'd have to rebel. I'm such a rebel in life so it would have to have happened at some point point. and um you know I'd rather it was under the last Labour regime than this one so <laughs> hopefully I've got it out of my system
0: and how's your relationship with your local party because there was a period where it was perhaps a bit difficult, where you'd attended the rally against anti-Semitism, and
1: yeah,
0: and the local um, party chair wasn't too happy. Interesting
1: characters. The local party chair is still around. Um, He'll need re-electing, I think, probably early summer, depending on the lockdown situation. We don't see eye to eye. There's no point in pretending that we do. Um, we're from very different political wings of the party. and But the problem I have with him as the party chair is that he will go to the press and things and say that he's speaking for our CLP. Our CLP is some 2,000 members. And I absolutely know that that someone from that particular faction who's so strongly against me as the MP does not represent the whole of the CLP, largely very supportive and fantastic to work with and was so great during the election. So we do have issues, me and the party chair, um, but he doesn't represent the majority of Labour members in my experience. So.
0: And what I think of, and again, you're only elected in 2017 and then you sort of, you're in the shadow team and then you resign over the single market. You've got the issues with your local party. And of course, a lot of Labour MPs have been through this and, and Tory MPs yeah. have been through it with their local party with mm. other issues. But it feels like you you win by this slender majority, which is an incredible victory. You're then catapulted into parliament, perhaps against the odds. And then you've got all these different battles going on in parliament and outside of parliament. I mean, it must've just felt like the most relentless time in your life.
1: Yeah, it's been very, very intense the last couple of years and it got to the snap election. And I wasn't the only one who had to ask myself, do I really, really, really want to go through this? and I did, I mean, I want to be an MP and I want to do the job, but that other stuff, all that distracting noise, it can really get in the way sometimes. And it did. I mean, the whole stuff about antisemitism was such a horrible distraction from, from just getting on with the things you want to do. You want to help an old lady who really needs some kind of support. You know, you want to help individual friends in, in the constituency and charities and things. Um, and the antisemitism issue was incredibly humiliating and, you know, we really paid the price for that in the election, I think.
0: So with the change in leadership, and it's been quite mm-hmm. interesting watching and, and Jenny Formy going and, and and the result, not just of the leadership, but of the deputy leadership and of the NEC, is that it seems, and perhaps this is too soon to say, mm-hmm. but it seems like Corbynism didn't hold in the way that perhaps people thought it was going to do in terms of numbers. So Mm -hmm. you get a sense that already the party is quickly moving on and not just emotionally, but we've got a new leader and let's unite and all the rest of it. But it is the kind of hard left tendency disappearing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think they were just very loud, very vocal, but actually the majority of ordinary members are not like that. And the majority of ordinary members have been stopped from going to meetings because of the atmosphere and getting too involved. And they've been kind of shut up on social media. But, you know, if you've been in the Labour movement for a while, you know that just one faction like that is not the majority. And they're just very loud, very disruptive, but they're not the the people that make up the party. And if they want to leave now, if they don't recognise where we're going as a party and the unity that we need to, to do, then fine. You know, that's fine. But what I'd like is if they stayed and maybe revisited some of their attitudes from the last couple of years.
0: That's <laughs> went know. on a journey.
1: Yeah. A yeah.
0: But uh, have, have I mean, obviously it's different now because we're in lockdown. But prior to that, had things calmed at all or is it too early to um, tell?
1: I think it was too early to tell I think I think people are digging in you know you've got the characters on social media the sort of Navara media people and Canarian stuff they're just going to do what they do aren't they and maybe they can find a new movement and go and sort of do that with Chris Williamson I don't know but um but we really need to get on with the business of being electable that's what the country needs and that's our job and I'm going to carry on getting on with that and winning back some of our seats that we've just lost we've devastated I lost 60 colleagues you know.
0: I mean, the the election result, and it doesn't really feel like, I don't really feel like Labour had a post-mortem after 2017. It had a celebration instead. And as for 2019, I I suppose in a way it was explored a little through the leadership contest, but there hasn't Mm -hmm. really been a proper analysis, even though I would suggest it's fairly obvious (laughs) why Labour lost, but I know some people might disagree. But for the future now of Labour, it, you can already feel the difference that having Keir Starmer in charge has made. It, yeah. Holding this government to account during a time like this, it feels like Labour is back on the pitch. And even though it has a mountain to climb electorally, there that, that does feel like there's a public shift in opinion now in, in favourability towards Labour.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously there's so much more work to
0: do, but it, it, is it inconceivable that Labour can win the next election? No,
1: I mean, at the beginning, of, you know after the election, I thought, no way, we're not going to do it in four or five years. We've got to kind of have another 10. But actually, I think he has been brilliant. I mean, look at him going up in the ratings, you know, already. And he's just been so diplomatic and statesmanlike. And that is really important because what the public don't want at the moment is us tearing chunks of each other out in a party, partisan way. And he's, you know, trying to cooperate with the government. And my feeling is, if we were in government now, how would we do it differently? No one wants to be in that position, you know, and I think he has been really grown up about that. There are things we have to criticise and we are going to do that. And afterwards, we can have a kind of post-mortem and we can say this was done terribly badly and this could have been done better, but it doesn't help if we are seen to be tearing chunks out of each other now because the country needs to feel safe and they need to see us being united. And I think that's what we're doing.
0: And for Labour... As a party, obviously there's still a whole load of people in the party sympathetic to Jeremy Corbyn and and people who think the last five years have been the party's best. Mm -hmm. To to win the support of the country, Labour needs to demonstrate, some would say, that it is making a clear break with the Corbyn era, not just in terms of anti-Semitism, but policy, Mm -hmm. attitude, worldview, whether it's more patriotic, less hostile to NATO and to the EU and things like that. These are still huge political battles that have to be won often in democratic votes on the floor of the conference. So at the moment, it might feel there's a kind of cosmetic change, but the real business of changing the Labour Party hasn't even started yet. I mean, it it surely might not be that easy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it is. I mean, the fact that, you know, one particular faction had taken hold of the party at conference and all the motions and all of that, again wasn't reflective to me of of my experience of the Labour Party but we need to get that back we need to get that on an even keel so that you know I'm not saying that my faction should take over necessarily but you know I think Keir isn't really a, a factional person and I think the party generally on the whole you know obviously we're more to the right of Jeremy Corbyn, but, but you know, generally we want to incorporate all those elements and there is room for those sort of more extreme socialist views as well as the kind of central views. We just have to come together more and I think that will happen in the next few conferences. It's got to, hasn't it? Otherwise, we're not electable.
0: So how far to the right of Jeremy Corbyn are you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <I'm> pretty far <laughs> Pretty much. I think it's kind of obvious. (laughs) I mean, you know, obviously we're all socialists, but um, it was a struggle for the last couple of years, you know, and I benefited hugely from the last time we were in government. And, you know, there were some big mistakes, obviously one particularly huge mistake, but um, I benefited from things like tax credits, me, my children, Sure Start, schools, you know, all of those things that we did brilliantly. The homelessness was was much less visible, you know, all of those things. So, um, yeah, I think most people are to the right of Jeremy, aren't they? Yes,
0: yeah, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) I wonder if Labour ever gets to a position where it can publicly acknowledge that the last Labour government was a success.
1: I think we're getting there, yeah. And I think individual shadow cabinet um, leaders are... Are kind of doing that now, and you know, people that were involved in our last government are now back. You know, that's really important, isn't it? They knew what to do, and we became very electable. So we need to listen to that again, I think.
0: And for you, I mean, the the future already—you've—you've—you've climbed so quickly in such a short space of time. We talk about Labour needing a female leader, someone that can command support across the country, that can work cross-party. There must be part of you that thinks, well. If there's not a leadership election in five or eight or ten years time, then I'll fancy having a go at it.
1: Not a chance. Oh
0: come <laughs> no. on, come on. I know you've got I to don't say
1: anyone that. Anyone want that job? I just no, definitely, definitely not. I, you know, honestly, there are so many other brilliant women in the party that could do a much better job than me. Um I backed Jess Phillips in the um beginning of the leadership race. My friend Rosanna allen Khan, I think, did brilliantly in the deputy race. Um There are so many great women who could do a much better job and possibly, you know, I just, I don't want to do that job. Honestly, I don't. I really
0: don't. If you can win in Canterbury,
1: (laughs) you can win anywhere. Uh, mm, I don't know. I don't know about that. (laughs) Well, I suppose, you know what?
0: Obviously it's it's far more complex than that, but equally, Mm -hmm. if you can get people to vote Labour in Canterbury at a time when Jeremy Corbyn was leading the Labour Party Mm -hmm. then clearly you possess a set of skills that few Labour politicians have.
1: Okay, maybe. I don't know. But, I mean, when when you're standing as the leader of your party, you've also got to be prepared to be the Prime Minister. And, seriously, no chance. No thank you. (laughs) No way. Why not? Oh, God, because I'd be absolutely hated by so many people, and I just don't want that. I don't want that. I I don't want that for my children. I, I value my privacy. Kind of a bit more than that, I think. Actually, yeah, no, but, definitely you know,
0: not. Because I think that element has put off a lot of people who are <laughs> better qualified than the people who've ended up doing the job.
1: Yeah, possibly. Do yeah. you think we can get politics but, to not, a point um, where? Sorry, yeah, but just but just my own children kind of being exposed to that, and you know everything they do from now on being kind of you know I'm really fiercely protective of everyone I love, and I and I think that would just be too much actually.
0: Well, wait for them to be fully grown up. You've got years yet. You could still do it in another 30 years time.
1: They're they're pretty grown up, but (laughs) I don't know, 30 years time, I'll be quite old by then.
0: (laughs) It's just, it's, it's just so sad because I talked to so many people on this podcast that would make far better leaders of oppositions and parties and prime ministers than some of the people that have held those um, roles in the last 20 or 30 years. And Mm. they don't, they're put off by the effect on their family or the or their their personal life or the 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 yeah. the cost of the job is is so high that I wonder yeah. if we're talking about all these ways of improving the world and the experience that politics has been through in the last five or ten years really has been horrific in terms of how abusive mm-hmm. it's been. I wonder if in the next five or ten years politics does become a calmer safer place for people to perhaps feel like they can channel their ambitions.
1: That would be lovely. I think, yeah, it would be really, really great. And I suppose, weirdly, this whole lockdown thing is just changing our psyche a tiny bit. And maybe we are being kinder to each other. And, you know, maybe political barriers are going to come down a little bit. I'd really like to think so. You know, we're valuing people that we've taken for granted all of our lives, like just the people that collect our rubbish, you know, and the people that will be there if you need to call them you know that you may never have needed to call before and just the love for the NHS is overwhelming isn't it and it's long overdue actually.
0: It's nice to think about actually the positives of this not just you know being able to go to the pub and (laughs) leave the (laughs) house or whatever you know go to football (laughs) matches and comedy gigs and music but you know I think a lot of us are thinking at the moment what what will be the, the 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 impact of this us as a society and as a planet what what positives come out of it so i suppose it's nice to think about would it make us a, a more equal society
1: a more tolerant place I hope so. and you mentioned the word planet and i was watching channel 4 news the other day and they just there was a line on there and they were saying the planet is healing itself well i went to bed happy because just this one line was just going over and over in my head and i thought okay, so it's taken this horrible, horrible disaster for our planet to literally be healing ourselves. What a, wonder, what a wonderful thing. And, you know, if, if we can look at the environmental damage that we do every single solitary day without thinking, and something like this can just make our birds come out and sing and things grow and butterfly species not get wiped out, you know, just silly things like that, you know, maybe we can take the environment a bit more seriously and we can stop polluting everything with traffic and cars we've got around without driving everywhere haven't we for the last few weeks you know we haven't got around as much but we've survived we've coped we don't need to get in the car every five seconds um so i think things like that are something we absolutely have to work on yeah
0: Just nice to end on a positive note rosie thank you so much thank you well there you go rosie duffield what an absolute pleasure and just left me so hopeful for the future for the future of politics in this country, for the tone in which politics is conducted, for the talent that is in the Labour Party. There are so many positives to take, and perhaps even through this huge, bleak experience, some positives, not just as a nation, but as a planet. And uh, it was so good talking to her about her work on the domestic abuse bill and the strength of character to stand up and talk about horrific experiences and the benefit that will give other people to hear her stand up in Parliament and talk so passionately and personally about really horrendous things that have happened really shows that firstly the power that she possesses as an individual but also the power of politics and the power of politics happening in democracies and and the importance of Parliament being a place where all these issues can be discussed however difficult so that was just, I just found that hugely optimistic. But who knows what the future holds? Perhaps a future Labour leader, a future Prime Minister, or, or the creator of a new spitting image. Um, thank you so much, Sir Rosie, for coming on. Thank you for your emails. Do email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I've had some great guest recommendations. Do keep them coming in, as well as, it's always nice to know where people listen. Christopher Doble listens in Devon. I mean, I can't think of a better place to be If you're isolating, to isolate somewhere so beautiful must be wonderful for all the stresses that come with it. Um, And if you can, do leave an iTunes review. Thank you to those of you that have. It just helps other people find the podcast. So if you've enjoyed it, tell people, please. Thank you very much. If you haven't, uh, then uh, keep it to yourself. But thank you very much for downloading, um, and I shall see you soon. ta